Canaan. It's all about Jesus. It's not about religion, it's about relationships. Where beginners are welcome. Where forgiveness is offered. Where hope is alive. And it's okay to not be okay. Today we're talking about the triumphal entry. So this past Sunday, Martin did a great job of, of uh, looking at the triumphal entry through the lens of what was what was Jesus, what was his statement? What was he saying as he was coming in? How, how did this involve faith and government and politics of the day? And, and then what are the applications for us today? And so there's just a lot there in there, Martin. There's just a lot there, all the statements Jesus is making as he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey, the foal of a donkey. So, uh, so wow, there's so many different angles that we have to, to chat through um, today on this. So let's let's first just start talking about how did this act of Jesus, how did this communicate to the whole city, the whole nation of Israel, that Jesus is the king? Yeah, uh, when you see what Jesus is doing there, like I shared on Sunday, um, you know, the Zechariah 9-9 passage, it's pretty... It, it's pretty amazing how clearly Jesus communicates his Messiahship by fulfilling that uh, perfectly. Coming to the people humble, uh, on the donkey. Um, you can also see, of course, they're celebrating Passover week. And what was typical of the Jews is, I didn't mention this Sunday, but it was normal for the Jews to, on Monday of that week, take the lamb, the sacrificial lamb that they were going to actually sacrifice for the family and set that lamb aside on that day, about a week in advance, um, at least five days that that lamb had to be moved to the side so that there was no spot or blemish or anything on it. It could be watched. If it was sick, it couldn't be sacrificed because it had to be perfect. And so when you see Jesus present himself, it's almost like he's presenting himself as the lamb of God. And if you remember John's gospel, that's the first thing, John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, He says there, and we've got songs even written about that called Agnus Dei, which means Lamb of God, right? Um, So you can kind of see, you know, you see it pretty clearly in in that act of coming into Jerusalem that he is the sacrificial son of God. That's right. So you have all the prophecy that Jesus fulfilled and that the Jewish, particularly the Jewish people, would have readily identified, you know, like you, like you mentioned, the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, uh, entering on the, the cult, the foal of a donkey. You know, but even in just Roman culture and just international culture of the day, any time that a king would enter in the city for coronation, it was very custom for the, the entire city to go out and greet the king and then come into the city with the king. And so... This would have been something that not only the Jews would have recognized as Jesus staying, but also even the Romans, the, the, the cohorts and the legions that were stationed there in Judea would have recognized Jesus entering the city as a profound statement. Uh, I think you mentioned it on Sunday that, you know, probably at the same time Jesus is entering the city on the cult of a donkey, Pilate is probably entering the west side of the city on a white horse. Uh, because he was seen as the 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 king's author, or authoritative representative, uh, Caesar's representative as the governor of that area. So uh, entering the city for Passover. So just a, a an incredibly profound statement. What about the uh, what about the palm branches? You, you kind of alluded to the Maccabean revolt on Sunday. That what where did the palm branches come from? What's the what's the significance of palm branches on Palm Sunday? 
which is where we celebrate the triumphal entry. Yeah, so uh, the book of Second Maccabees uh, talks about the um, Maccabean Revolt. And so after Alexander the Great dies, his empire gets split into four parts, basically. And one of the parts uh, is... And let, is me, let me jump in just, just yeah. to clear that up. So Alexander the Great was Greek. So the Greek empire was ruling over the land of Israel. This would have been about 140, 150 BC time frame. Okay, I'm sorry. I just want to make sure. No, I, yep, go ahead. Yeah. And so, um, you know, there's a group of men they call the Diadoche, which are like the successors. So his his empire breaks into four parts. One of those parts is the Syrian part. And, you know, for a while, the Jews had relative peace. Um, you know, they were allowed to worship their own God and the Syrians left them alone. In fact, they were kind of annexed to the Ptolemaic uh, party, which was over in Egypt, and they were allowed to appoint their own high priests, everything like that, until about the year 198. And uh, there was a man who became a Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes. And what Antiochus Epiphanes did was he annexed Israel to the Syrians, and he began to you know, break in with Greek culture. Uh, Hellenism. He forced the Jewish people to stop circumcising their children, stop reading the law, stop observing the Sabbath. And this led eventually to a revolt of the Jewish people um, by an older man whose last name was Maccabeus. And so his son eventually, Judas, uh, who was known as the Hammer, took over and began to revolt against the Syrians. Eventually, Antiochus ends up dead and um, after having already desecrated the temple and the Jews gain, regain control of the temple, they reconsecrated to God. The, of course, the celebration Hanukkah is also celebrated during that time. But the palm branch during that time period became, became a sign of revolt, a sign of uh, power, of Jewish power uh, against oppressors like the Syrians. And so, you know, everybody would have known Daniel. You know, right. when That's those right. palm branches were being waved when Jesus came into town, that there's going to be a fight. Yep. And it was going to be a victorious fight. So that really feeds to exactly what the people were looking forward to in Jesus, the king, right. that he would be another Maccabean leader type leader that would kick this time Rome out and reestablish the Jewish kingdom, maybe even greater than Solomon's day. Exactly. And so that was the expectation. That was the expectation. and. So Jesus rides in, in in the midst of all of this political fervor and all of this uprising, all this idea of revolution and overthrowing Rome. That was the scene that Jesus entered into. Um, and so, yes, he fulfilled prophecy. He uh, he, he fed the the international culture of the of the entering king. He fed the the symbology of the palm branches. So all of that was going on as Jesus entered into the city. And uh, it's amazing. There were so many people there. You mentioned the deal with Passover and uh, that, you know, there were probably over two million people in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover because people would come from all over because the temple was kind of the centerpiece of how Passover was celebrated. Um, and then also, uh, according to John's, John's gospel, you know, you also had these people from Bethany and around that had seen Lazarus come from the dead. They wanted to come and see not only Jesus, but also see the resurrected, the, the resurrected Lazarus. So yeah. 
there was just a lot of stuff going on. This was a big deal. And, uh, and so through all that, you know, Jesus comes in, like you mentioned, the suffering servant. People didn't get that, uh, but he came in as a suffering servant. Um, and as we see now, of course, we're celebrating Passion Week this week. Um, we're celebrating the, the suffering servant. As we see Jesus go through the week, the crowd's going to change. They're, they're going to be going from, you know, laying their, their robes down, waving palm branches, crying out Hosanna, which means, you know, save us now. Uh, they're going to go from that to being irritated and angry and then ready to crucify Jesus. So why do you think it changed so quickly? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, you, and you just kind of summarized all that imagery that Jesus would have definitely demonstrated all the people about him being a king. So I think a lot of the people probably felt deceived. When you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, this promise that God says, you know, on your throne, there's going to be this king who's going to rule forever. The only imagery that they have in their mind in ancient Israel is a conquering king. They don't have this messianic, now, they have scriptures where the prophets, you know, clearly lay out that there's going to be this suffering servant. Isaiah 53 is a great place to look, or even Psalm 22. You can see the suffering servant, but they've not seen it in a tangible way yet. Any king that they had had was always a powerful king. Yeah. And so they're looking for a restoration of Israel, the physical, ethnic Israel. They're not looking for this priest. Um and that's yep. why, you know, Sunday morning I pointed out, like, Psalm 110 is actually the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. That's kind of surprising. But in that passage, you know, it, the reason I think the, the New Testament writers do that is because they're demonstrating that he's not only a king, but he's a priest. And this time when he comes, he's fulfilling those priestly obligations to reconcile the world. So they definitely felt deceived, Daniel. Yeah. Which kind of gives you, you know... Um, some understanding of, of the struggle that some of the apostles had, you know, they, they had doubts and they were wondering, you know, which is why they were so crushed that when Jesus was crucified, they didn't get it yet. And they, they may not have felt deceived, but they definitely felt like, man, we, we had such, such high hopes and now they seem shattered, which is exactly where that leaves us ready for that hope of resurrection Sunday. Really right. does. Um, one other thing to talk about, you know, that this is kind of, kind of on topic, but a little different than triumphal entry, but that is Passion Week. Why do we call it the Passion Week? I know a lot of people ask that question. And when, um, you know, like about 20 years ago, little, yeah, Mel Gibson released the, the Passion of the Christ. Why is it called Passion? You know, Passion for us is a term that means, you know, love and, you know, the romantic physical passion. So why do we call it the Passion Week? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you kind of what my thinking is on it. I'd be interested in hearing what your thinking is. I know, like, if you look up the definition of the word passion, it actually, it's kind of like, it's illogical. Um, It doesn't make sense. It's kind of like that head over heels uh, love that might make you do something that doesn't make sense. And so when I think of it, I think of like in Romans where it says that, that the just gave up his life for the unjust. The, the, the sinless for the sinful. And I think, wow, what else could do that except God's passion and his pursuit of people that, that are distanced from himself because of sin? Yep. Um, so that's kind of how I, you know what I'm saying? Like I see the word 
passion uh, in that light because I see it as like almost just like this overblown love that God has for humanity to reconcile them to himself. What do you, what do you, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the Latin root for the word passion, paseo, it means to suffer. And um, so I think the etymology of that word goes right to what you're talking about. You know, originally it was the suffering of Christ, but in time, you know, words change. So like the, you know, see how, like an example, the word gay, you know, back in the forties and fifties, that meant happy and, but now the word has changed to being happy about being homosexual, right? Um, right. So suffering, the passion has changed, I, you know, my understanding from the concept of suffering to what do you love so much you're willing to suffer for? Yeah, the, It just kind of has evolved. But originally the, the term passion of Christ meant his suffering. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of fascinating why it's still that, that phrase still sticks around. The yeah. passion of the Christ, passion week. Um, yeah, it's all about the suffering, ultimately the victory of Jesus. And, you know, I love Hebrews 12, uh, verse 2, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Um, so, yeah, so anyway, so why would he do all this? Well, he this was like you said, this was the necessary step, the suffering, fulfilling the role of priest to set up. The second coming where he will satisfy that expectation of the conquering king. And I think you, you mentioned Revelation 19 um, this past Sunday, uh, how Jesus comes. He's not going to come on a on a colt of a donkey this time. What's he coming on this next time? He, come, he comes on the white horse. That's right. Yeah. The war horse uh, comes as victory and in power. And let me just, uh, I think I've got that verse here. Let me just read that verse. That is such a powerful um, passage talks about the second coming of Christ. Yeah, and I think it's important, Daniel, as you, as you read that verse that you can see both, uh, you know, the first time when he comes in his first advent, you see the obligate, the obligations of the perfect high priest met, but at that second coming, you see the perfect obligations of the King met. And that's, that's just, right. yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Revelation 19, as I said, it says, I saw heaven open. There was a white horse. The rider is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are, are like a fiery flame, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe stained with blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. And from his mouth came a sharp sword, so that with it he might strike the nations. He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He also will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. Well, that passage. And so that is what the Jews were expecting the first time, but they had missed, they looked over the first coming. Yeah. So and you, you think about it, it's like, <laughs> you know, when you see Jesus in his first coming at the Advent, the first Advent, You've got to be disappointed if you're looking for the king, because what is more, what is more um, weak appearing than a lamb that's sacrificed, right? Yeah. I mean, you're expecting the antithesis of this. That's right. And here it is laid out, giving his life, um, just like a sacrificial lamb would, right to the slaughter, man. Yeah. Yep. You know, you, you, you track through Passion Week, and... Uh, you get to that Thursday night when they're Monday, Thursday, when Jesus is instituting 
the the first Lord's Supper. Um, and you have that, he has that dialogue with the disciples where he says, one of you will betray me. And there's all those, you know, you have all that scene where all one is, is, am I the one? Am I the one? And of course, we know it's Judas. And, you know, you kind of begin to understand the thought process of Judas in this light. Um, you know, Jesus, he said early on, he's a devil in chapter in Luke's gospel. He records Jesus making that statement. But and here Judas was very selfish the whole time, but he thought he was going to be the treasurer for the king of all kings, mm-hmm. you know, and he thought he was going to be the money man for probably the wealthiest man in history. Um, so he had those kind of greedy expectations. And now Jesus was not fulfilling what his expectations were for the Messiah because he was expecting that earthly powerful king this first round. And yeah. so he was, very disappointed, probably, like you said earlier, probably felt a little betrayed. Um, and, you know, you kind of see that thought process of how he would just turn against the Lord. Obviously, he didn't have genuine faith at, at any time um, or he wouldn't have done that. So um, just, yeah, it's just a, when we get so locked into our expectations, that can be so dangerous when it mm-hmm. comes to the ways of Christ. Sure can. But it sets up the perfect hope of resurrection and the hope of that return of Jesus and the hope that we have now today, because he is the risen King. He's not yeah. just going to be King. He is the risen King right here, right now, as he says, my kingdom is within you. And so um, that's good stuff. It's good stuff. Um, so I know one thing we, uh, we getting some, some emails about is uh, to maybe have some, some podcasts talking about eschatology, which is the study of end things. You know, there's a, a growing debate among different views of the timing of Jesus's return uh, with respect to uh, the reign of Christ on earth and eternity. And, and so we'll terms like premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, um, you know, so we might be having those conversations soon. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that and may lay some of that out. But that'll be good. Well, Pastor Martin, so what's the application of all this? Faith in government. How do we how do we learn from what Jesus did and apply that to us here today? What's the personal application to the triumphal entry of Jesus's political statements? Yeah, I think it's important to remember, like that, you know, no matter what happens uh, in the political realm here, um, you know, we should be involved with that as much as we possibly can if we live in like a free country. But no matter what happens here um, right now, that Christ, we've got to remember that Christ will redeem this creation, that the whole earth groans, Romans 8 talks about, until the coming of the Son of God and the and the sons of God are revealed. You know, there's going to be this revealing, this restoration that comes. And so ultimately, we can't put our hope here. You know, any political scheme um, is going to come up short. Uh, of God's, uh, the future that God has for us as he redeems humanity. So I think it's important for us just to keep our, you know, our our minds in the word of God, to obey it, uh, even if the government tells us not to, um, and to just be obedient to the Lord right now and faithful. I use Daniel as an example, but there are plenty of examples within the Bible um, of people who withstood difficult government situations and just did what was right. And of course, Jesus is a great example of that who preached only truth, right? I mean, if you, if you can be mad enough to sacrifice and kill 
kill a person who was perfect, right? They're going to want to kill people like us who are imperfect. And Jesus yeah, says, yeah. That. he says, if they persecuted me, they're going to want to persecute you. Yeah, <laughs> so, that's right. Um, so just to remain faithful, I think, in the midst of anything that happens within government. Yeah, that's right. You know, and as, as culture go, is going, you know, it's going to become more and more difficult um, for us to to stand firm on the, all the tenets of the faith and what scripture says. And, um, you know, there's, there's plenty of, of other examples of believers who have found themselves uh, when governments have changed or whether it's been quickly, you know, like with a story like a Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany, where he was a, a very solid evangelical Lutheran pastor that had ministered for, for years to, to his faithful people. And, while their government changed directions quickly to where Christianity, true Christianity became an enemy of the state. And we saw the persecution that he went through uh, there. That's just one of many examples where that, that has happened and it can happen here. And so, and, you know, given enough time, it probably will happen here because no, nowhere the scripture says that the United States lasts forever. Right. So we, we don't know what tomorrow holds for us, but we do know that Jesus holds tomorrow. And we do know the kingdom of God lasts forever. So that is where our ultimate allegiance lies. Yeah, That's right. very good. And it's good to keep our minds focused on that. Um, as we see the little culturalisms happen, like you mentioned, uh, the whole issue of transgenderism in sports. And um, as we see things like that happen, it's just, there's just going to be probably more of that. Um, so yeah. we should expect that. And, but not let that cause us to waver in our faith. Yeah. And not to cause us to have despair because yeah. we have reason to hope of resurrection. That's right. Well, any last parting words, Pastor Martin? Yeah, just really looking forward to you be back, uh, being back in the saddle this week, uh, you know, having to be quarantined because of COVID-19, but you're going to yeah. get to preach Easter, man. I'm, I'm yeah. just excited to hear the resurrection. Me too. I can't wait. Can't wait. Yeah, you did a great job Sunday. I, I was looking forward to talking about Trump will intro Maine. You did a great job. You did a great Thanks. job. And uh uh during Wonder Terror's doing great. Yeah, she got the positive COVID test, but uh she was pretty much asymptomatic. Um and I tested negative, so ready to get back get back on the get back in the in the saddle, like you said. Can't wait. So miss everybody. Um can't wait to see all of you this Sunday as we celebrate the most important event in history, the resurrection of the son of God. Amen. All right. Everybody have a great week. We'll see you. Talk to you next time on Canaan STL podcast. 